Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 103 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger as we alongside Frank Saravalli. We're going to have Bane Pettinger as our uh, big guest today. Uh, Frank, there's lots going on. Uh, coaching changes in Canada. Man, the Pacific Division, uh, they're just, and of course Montreal, but the Pacific Division just uh, wheeling through coaches left and right here the last few years. Feels like the NHL in general. That's now seven coaches that have been changed this season alone. I mean, it's we're only halfway through in terms of the number of games. Five coaches have been fired, two resigned, Paul Maurice and Joel Quenville for two different reasons. And we're getting close to the bloodiest season for NHL coaches in history. The record is nine in one season. And that was back in the 80s. I believe it was 1981-82. This is a lot of change. Now, does that include like when the season ends? Because sometimes no, teams- that's, that's in season. In season. Teams. Okay. Yes. Right. The record okay. is nine. We're at seven. All right. Seven. Um, and well, will there be, so here's my, before we dive into the Habs and the Oilers, will there be another one this year? Well, I was just going to ask you, I was looking, I'm like, like the East is kind of set on where they're going. So some teams might just wait it out. Yeah. I don't see anyone really in the East. I think maybe at the end of the season, Lindy Ruff is a possibility in New Jersey. Again, they've got a lot of flaws, so maybe not, you know, and, um, and Tom Fitzgerald has spoken glowingly about Lindy Ruff in the media. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot. That's the other key about this year. There's a lot of interims. Yes. You know, Mike Yo in Philly, Dave Lowry in Winnipeg. Like, how many of these guys are actually going to end up getting the job? Jay Woodcroft in Edmonton is an interim to close out the year. Other than that, I I don't know that there's another coaching change coming. No, I, I think I don't, this might be it. Yeah, I think it might be it. I was I was looking at the teams that are out of it. I don't I don't see them suddenly making a big splash. So let's start with that in Montreal and Dominic Ducharme. A total of eighty-one regular season games, half of last year. You know, 35, 45 games this year. They only won eight games. I know they went to the Stanley Cup final. They've been decimated by injuries, no question. I was a little surprised by the timing, but probably more surprised by Marty St. Louis, strictly because, you know, he's, he was co- the last time I saw Marty he was coaching uh, team Connecticut at the, at the, at the brick tournament in Edmonton. And uh, which, you know, is pretty big. Uh, that's a, you know, a 10 year old tournament. And uh, he was coaching his son. What do you make of this deal? I, you know, I was impressed by his press conference, but man, he, he inherited a tough position. Well, that's why he's there. And I, and that, I don't say that in a, in a, in a shot to, to Marty St. Louis, obviously he has a huge believer in Kent Hughes and, and Jeff Gordon as well. They're, they're really intrigued by this idea quite clearly, but it was a tough spot for anyone. Like yeah. who wants to come in for three months in maybe the toughest media market in the NHL with a ton of eyeballs, you're getting it in two languages for, a team that's poorly constructed has been running a third or fourth string goalie out there night after night and has been getting knuckle dragged through the league. I mean, who wants to sign up for that? Yeah. It's just another reason why I love Marty St. Louis and the confidence. Like he comes in, he's like, I don't care about term. I don't like, I don't need a, I don't need any term. Like I just want to come in and get an opportunity and show you what I can do. That's, that's, that's his, that's on brand. That's his life story. Yeah. It's true. Think he about his, his start in Calgary. Well, I mean, after being over, and even in Calgary, he got waived, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, all he needed his entire career was an opportunity. Ends up being a Hall of Famer. Ends up 2003-4, leading the league in scoring, Hart Trophy, Ted Lindsay, and the Stanley Cup. I mean, that's his story. So to think that he would be lacking confidence or concerned about how he's going to run an NHL bench. He played in the league for 16 years. I've said this in other media. I've done this week talking about it, but I, and I don't mean any disrespect to anyone that's on an NHL bench, the passion, the sheer hours that they put in at the rink, the amount of hockey that they watch, the different ways that they try and prep their players and, and get them motivated. It is a difficult job, but it's not rocket science. Like arguably the best coach in the national hockey league, John Cooper was a college lacrosse player that then became an attorney. 
it's about people skills. It's about motivating your players and finding a way to dig in with them and get the most out of them, finding what makes them tick strategy, everything else. It's important, but it's not as important as your players knowing that you have their back. That's a huge part of it. And I think Marty St. Louis having run the gamut in his career, you know, from NCAA player struggling to make it, to then becoming an absolute superstar and Hall of Famer, he's lived every part of it, and now he gets a chance with the team that he grew up cheering for. Yeah, well, you look at the difference. If we're using – look when the team Cooper took over when he became a head coach. Look how many guys now are probably going to be Hall of Famer. Like, you had a young Hedman and Stemkos. And, like, when you have good players, obviously it makes it easier to be anybody's mm-hmm. a coach. And that's why I'm curious about St. Louis because I agree that the biggest challenge he's going to have is just keeping players upbeat because their talent pool in Montreal right now just isn't on par with a lot of other teams. I think that's that's not a knock. That's just the truth, especially with the injuries you mentioned in goal, Frank. So they don't have the talent. And I'm very curious to see at the end of the year – what they're evaluating St. Louis on, because I think, as you mentioned to Frank, I don't know if it's going to be the record, right? Like they won eight of 45 games. Like what's a realistic expectation when you look at that roster, how many games they'll win in their final 36. They lost their first one with him. So he's got 35 or whatever games they got left now, 36. So I'm curious what Montreal does at the end of the season and in their evaluation of St. Louis and what they'll look at, because I really don't think they can look at wins or losses. First off, I think, I don't know why, like, it, obviously it wasn't a shot, but you got to remember that John Cooper took over that team mid-season because Guy Boucher couldn't get it done. Yeah. Oh, no, so I'm to, not to discounting be, To be it. fair, no, but what I'm saying, you're not discounting Cooper, but what I'm saying, if it was so easy in Tampa with the players that they had, why did Guy Boucher have a losing record? That's my only point. Um, but I think it's it's not going to be record, but I think it's going to be things like last night's game, you know, their debut. You you look on on social media after and the hardcore Montreal Canadiens fans are saying that game was way more exciting than a lot of the wins that we had this year. So it's about, you know, he made the joke in his press conference about, you know, uh, yes, I've coached peewee hockey players this year, but I know also know what it means to have fun. These guys need to They need to have fun again. There needs to be some joy in coming to the rink. Clearly there wasn't that for a stretch and and how could there be with how bad this team has played this season with the holes that they have on their roster. I don't want to say this is a no risk hiring by the Montreal Canadiens because the risk is that you end up going on a bit of a run with Marty St. Louis and you end up with less ping pong balls in the end. That's the risk. But it's pretty small in the meantime because the NHL lottery is a crapshoot anyway. And the lack of points that they have, you know, there's a lot of ground to make up to really have it be detrimental at a certain point in terms of uh, percentages in the lottery. So other than that, like if you have found your next head coach, what a win that is. Yeah. And if not, if not, he's on a short-term contract and you just go your separate ways and you say, Hey, Marty, great job. We appreciate you jumping in, leaving your family. Why don't you come be a senior advisor for us? Mm -hmm. And we'll rely on your expertise. Other than that, like, like who, who's going to be hopping into that position without any certainty? Yeah. Oh, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, though, the, the, the different dynamics of the two coaching changes this week. So you got Marty St. Louis who comes in and no pressure. Yeah, very little pressure. Then Jay Woodcroft comes into Edmonton, and it's completely different. One foot in the frying pan, the other one in the pressure cooker. But Woodcroft will, you know, I think there's lots of fans in Edmonton that that, that have been calling for this. They want to see a change. You know, they see the Jay Woodcroft in the American League. They've had some success, you know, winning division titles. And, you know, didn't get it done as much as they'd like in the playoffs, but they had the division titles, which is nice. He comes in, though. And when I look at Woodcroft, I'm I'm fascinated by a few things because it's unique because, yeah, he's a new coach in Edmonton, but he was an assistant coach when Nurse and Drysaddle McDavid and Nugent Hopkins were here. He's coached a lot of the young players and guys, you know, Pugliarvi even in the American League and such. So he knows a lot of the guys. He won't have to get to know personalities. Obviously, Hyman's and Canes and Barry's and others, yes, but... 
the big thing for me when I look at Jay Woodcroft and the challenge, well, it's twofold, Frank. He's got the biggest advantage is that his two best players for the last two months have been well below their standards. Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, Frank, from the start of the 17-18 season, they're, the, they're number one and number two in NHL scoring. They're the two best offensive guys. By a fair margin, McDavid's almost 100 points ahead of the third guy. In the last quarter of the season, Connor McDavid's under a point a game. He's got 21 points in 22 games. Now, do I think that's going to continue? No, I don't. So Jay Woodcroft automatically is going to get a bump because McDavid's going to go probably back to, he was a 1.68 points per game in his previous 230 games. Like that's a pretty big drop from 168 to 0.95. And Dreisada went from 1.48 down to one point a game. So both of them, I think, are going to get better naturally. So he inherits a lot of pressure, but he also inherits a situation where those guys can be better. My one question is, I think in Edmonton, there's got to be a little bit of a change and possibly some more accountability or just, hey, you guys can't be on the ice for a minute. Then we get a power play. And now we're going to stick with you. Like, I think there's got to be some subtle changes in, in allocation of ice time at different points of the game. That and all of that said, if you don't get the stops, none of it's going to matter. I don't care how many goals or points Connor McDavid has. Doesn't matter. Like with all due respect, it doesn't matter. You it, you can wallpaper over it for a stretch of games, and the Oilers have done that at times. You got to do something about your goaltending. You just it's just you have to. And to to piggyback off of what you were saying about some adjustments. You've mentioned it on the pod before. Perhaps the biggest adjustment isn't Jay Woodcroft. It's it might be Dave, Dave Manson. Manson. Yeah, their de their defensive zone coverage has not been good enough. But Woodcroft, the one thing I think, Frank, that the orders have been susceptible. Sports Logic's had him thirty first, thirtieth, thirty second, and scoring chances off the rush. They're getting murdered there. So I think you'll see some changes. You know. And what they defend the neutral zone, but also I think high turnovers in the offensive zone has been an issue. And so I wonder if they'll eliminate, like they've had this attack style where the third forward comes high just inside the blue line with the puck. And I don't think it's worked. So uh, I'll be curious. The problem is they, they have like a, they have a practice on Saturday and, and maybe in a short one on Sunday. And that's it. Like they don't have a ton of practice time here. They play back to back Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, back to back Friday, Saturday. Then they go out east on that murderer's row in Tampa and Carolina and Florida. So it's kind of a tough time for a coach. I think they're going to have to implement a lot of new stuff through video and outside of one big practice. In the practice, you probably pick what's the main area we want to change and focus on one and then go from there. It's the schedule is it may be their biggest issue. I mean, you know, you look at what the Oilers have gotten through, like they've got 38 to go in the next 78 days. Yeah. That's a I've tough time to day. make a coaching change. Yeah. Well, you mentioned goaltending. So I'm going to ask you, Frank, you have Jay Woodcroft who comes in. You've got Mike Smith, who played back-to-back -back in those games. Now, Smith said himself, hey, sucks we didn't get the results I wanted. I let in too many goals, but I felt way better. I'm getting my timing back. Do you think Woodcroft goes with Smith tonight or the rookie, Stuart Skinner? Well, we're going to look stupid because by the time someone by the time someone listens to this, we'll maybe have already known the answer. I think he goes with Smith because yeah. you like if you are not making a change in goal, you're not trading for someone Smith has to be the answer yeah, and that's their only hope. So I think it would be Smith. Yeah. And I think they might be dressing three rookie defensemen tonight. Now I, I consider Bouchard a rookie, even though the NHL weird rules because he played seven games twice in two years. He isn't, but he had 21 games experience to me. He's a rookie Broberg, Nima Linen. So I, I agree with you It's Smith, but it's funny because you know, the fan base has been clamoring for Skinner and they're like, well, the only reason Skinner didn't play was because Dave Tippett didn't like him. And I'm, I'm not necessarily sold. That's the only reason, right? I, I think sometimes, you know how it is, Frank, teams go with veterans. You're going to live and die with them because you feel, hey, Mike Smith, has he struggled this year? Fair. But he's also played well for a long time in his career, and they'll give guys like that extra opportunity. So I, I have no inside knowledge here, and, and so perhaps I'm stepping off the ledge when I ask you this question. Do you think any part of Ken Holland's gut decision that he made 
has to do with Dave Tippett and his relationship with Mike Smith? It's an interesting, not relationship, but trust in that quite, you know, you watch him go in back-to-back nights. You know, what did Ken Holland think about that? It's his, you know, it's, it's Dave Tippett's choice to make, but when you see a goalie travel with a coach from Dallas to Arizona to Edmonton, that's his guy. Yeah. So is this, is Ken Holland saying, you know, we've had enough here. Fair question. I honestly think what changed his mind, Frank, is if you watch the first period against Chicago, that might I could have been were, five nothing though. Oh, and that, and that's, were, that's the awful. problem with 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 being critical of Smith is that it wasn't all on him the other no, night. No, their defensive zone coverage was abysmal, and I think. I think the fact that they lost back-to-back nights, if they would have come back and won the Chicago game, as strange as it sounds, I'm not not sure they would have made a coaching change. I just think they lost both in the fashion they lost both to a total of nine to one. They're they're two home games that you thought you you could have won, one if not both of them in, in theory, and they didn't. And so now the pressure's on. And, and I, I'd like to know, and, you know, we asked Ken Holland, and he mentioned that, you know, he'd had conversations with Dave Tippett for an hour and a half after the game. Like, I wonder how much of it was Tippett, who's a veteran coach, who would say, you know what? Maybe a change is needed here. I, I don't know if that conversation, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, if it actually happened or not, but I wonder if there was a part of it because Ken Holland himself, Frank, did mention Smith and Koskinen in his press conference yesterday, Smith and Koskinen. So I'm not sure that him playing Smith back-to-back would have been the deciding factor. I think it was more so the defensive zone coverage and just how the orders have been getting killed off the rush. I think he felt like, regardless of who our goalie is, if we can't improve that, because the one thing that's been consistent in Edmonton, pre-Dave Tippett, during Dave Tippett, the Edmonton orders five on five goals against is not good enough. It's been one that, year. That's, that, that's the issue that I think the, yeah. the entire fan base has with this firing now is like exactly what you saw in these two games this week is what we saw for six weeks. So why now? Why not yeah. a month ago when there was more runway? Honestly, I think I think the GM felt I, probably twofold. I think he feels responsible because you know he built a, he built the roster, and if the roster's not good enough, to blame the coach is kind of a scapegoat, right? Um, so I think he says, you know what, I'm going to give him his goalie, and then we'll see what happens. Well, he gave him his goalie. They got two games. They didn't win. And he's like, well, I got to make a change. That that's kind of where I see it. Okay, fair. And uh, it'll be interesting now to see where they go. But uh, Woodcroft, they'll make some changes. I think, you know, like anything, players will, will there's there's a new, a new coach. You know how it is, Frank. There'll be lots of excitement, lots of, hey, I want to impress the new coach. A little bit, I feel guilty because, you know, we got Dave Tippett fired. Uh, I, w- I would expect a good effort tonight. Doesn't mean they'll win, but I would expect a better effort. But I'm curious to see if there's going to be some organizational changes over the next few months in allocation at different times of, of ice time. That's the one thing that I'll be watching for. So. Yeah. Better defensive zone play would be a nice help for whoever's in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's bring in uh, Liam Horbin. He's filling in uh, Tyler Remchuk uh, on holidays uh, this week. Uh, we get into uh, buy or sell. Liam, how you doing? Good, guys. Thanks for having me this time. So, okay. Buy or sell is brought to you by DoorDash. Ding dong. Promo code RUNDOWNDD. <laughs> first time users of the app. 25% off and no delivery fees. Love nice. that. Where that ding dong was... Work, been working on that one. Oh. All right. So first question for buy or sell. Uh, Thomas Hurdle is still a member of the San Jose Sharks after the trade deadline. Frank, we'll start with you. No. And I and I know that Joe Will, the San Jose Sharks assistant GM, came out on Thursday and said that they're it's a top priority to re-sign Tomas Hurdle. They got to do something different there. They they have to. That that team. This is not. This is not one odd pandemic year. This is not. Hey, this is. You know, we we're going to be able to turn this thing around. This is three consecutive seasons of lottery hockey. Can't can't march the same group back again. You know, it, it's madness to do it, and I think. On a team where there's anchors with contracts, you have to use every opportunity possible to unload pieces that you can and get significant value in return. Tomas Hurdle, significant value. You need to jumpstart the process. 
And not only that, I like Tomas Hurdle. He's had a special season this year. Timo Meyer has been great. Tomas Hurdle's 28 years old. When your team finally gets to where you want to get them to at some point, he's going to be 32. How does that make any sense for you? It's a great question. Um, if, if he would be willing to sign a shorter-term deal, I think he, I, I would say buy. Because uh, like Frank alluded to, I think the next few years, when you're in a rebuild, you still need some veteran players, but I think he's going to want long-term. And I'm just not sure the Sharks can do They got too many long-term guys, so I will, I will also buy. And I'll say that he will not be there. You want, you want vets. They got plenty of them. They're going to have plenty of them because they ain't going anywhere. All right, question two for buy sell. The Edmonton Oilers are a playoff team. Jason? Yeah, I'll buy that. The Pacific Division isn't that good. So um, the, uh, the, the bounce they will get from the new head coach, a uh, few subtle changes, they'll be a playoff team. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Vegas, yes. Calgary, yes. The team that I'm worried if, or you should be worried if you're an Oiler fan is the LA Kings and just getting better goaltending down the stretch. That's really the worry. You know, the only thing separating the Kings from being a playoff team for a long time is time. I don't know. Not sold, I guess is what I'm saying. Could so easily be a playoff team and should be a playoff team. I'd buy that they're a playoff team, but I'm not sold. How about that? All right. Okay, well, sticking with Pacific Division, I've heard we're fans of points percentage in this one. So the Calgary Flames have the best points percentage in the Pacific, but are fourth in points with 43 games played. Will uh, buy or sell the Calgary Flames finish first in the Pacific Division? Frank? Sell. Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights are about to get Jack Eichel. We you know, mentioned the story yesterday on dailyfaceoff.com that many teams believe that Mark Stone will be placed on LTIR that would open enough room salary cap wise where they could activate both Eichel and Alec Martinez on the back end and only send two players to the minors without having to trade anyone. The Vegas Golden Knights are going to be a better hockey team. They're going to get a shot in the arm. Calgary Flames have played well, and they just crushed the Golden Knights, so I realize the irony in that, but I have Vegas winning the division. You know what? I'm going to uh, I'm going to buy. I'm going to say there's going to be some uh, Vegas is going to, uh, you know, Mark Stone might be out for the remainder of the regular season, big emotional leader for them, and the, uh, the Calgary Flames, uh, Daryl Sutter, Every game plays like a playoff game in the regular season. And uh, I think the Flames will actually, uh, I will buy for them to surprise and win the division. I think that's what I was going off to with Vegas kind of losing someone like Mark Stone and having Eichel who hasn't played for so long. Like, how will that affect it? So, okay. Fourth question, final question. Yesterday it was confirmed Arizona are going to play at ASU. Uh, Buy or sell, this is a good idea. Oh, wow. Buy because you know what? Uh, the, they're going to have the most capacity percentage of attendance they've ever had in franchise history. That I can tell you for sure. Um, I, th- I think it, it's probably going to be a raucous environment. I don't know how much money they're going to make, but I think the environment for games is, is going to be very collegiate, if I want to say. So uh, the, the environment in a lot of games in Arizona has been meh. So from an environment standpoint, it's going to be much better. The finances, I don't know. I'm not sure Arizona made any money anyway, so I'm not sure this changes much. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not even sure it matters. Um, I am buying. I am all in on this. Like I, Tuesday night on Arizona State's campus, you fill the bleachers, $10 tickets, $20 tickets, and dollar beers. Like They might have the best home ice advantage that they've ever had in their entire franchise history. Um, there is a whole section of, of, at least according to the plans, the whole end zone of the rink is there's no seats. It's just bleachers. It's, it could be amazing. Yeah. And, and, and like what college campus has an NHL, a professional sports team that plays there. Arizona state actually had it when the Cardinals played there, uh, in the NFL, which was kind of amazing in and of itself, but that was still the NFL fans just filling your stadium. This could be 
the best thing the Coyotes have ever done. I am here for it. And if not, I'm here for it bombing spectacularly. <laughs> but more to the point, they may now bake in a whole new generation of fans that would never have seen Arizona Coyotes hockey that could actually propel this team to being like a cool thing in town. Yeah. If the, now if the Coyotes could actually have a competitive team, that would help. Well, that's kind of the problem is they're going to be a a brutal hockey team for the next three years. Sign some fighters. (laughs) All right. That's it for buy myself presented by DoorDash. Thanks, Liam. There you go. Uh, your rem truck uh, will be back next week. Uh, Frank, let's get to our uh, big guest today, uh, certified NHL player agent, Bane Pettinger. Our next guest is woven into the fabric of the game. He's one of those guys that might not get a ton of headlines, but you talk to anyone in the rink, seemingly everyone everywhere knows who he is. He started out his career working at Hockey Canada. Uh, he's got extensive background at both the Olympic Games in Sochi as well as Pyeongchang with NHL players, without NHL players. And since then, this proud Victoria, British Columbia native has transitioned to the agent field working at CAA Sports with Pat Brisson and JP Barry. And in November of 2020, became the first first openly gay NHLPA certified agent in a story that was released with tons of support and love from around the hockey world. The DFO rundown is pleased to welcome Bane Pettinger. Bane, how you doing, man? Good, Frank, Jason. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, awesome to have you. And I want to start with this because as someone who grew up, you know, kind of waffling between wanting to be a hockey reporter and wanting to be a hockey agent, everyone has a different path. How does one become an NHL player agent? Yeah, I was the same as you. I knew I wanted to be involved in the game at some level. Um, You know, I I quickly realized playing junior hockey that it wasn't going to be on the ice. So I had to get a job off the ice um, purely based on skill set. But I started at Hockey Canada as a finance intern when I was in my second year as a university. I went and said, hey, you know, I need some sort of job. I was in Calgary and I think I was filing uh, tax receipts and I had no idea what I was doing, but... It was a foot in the door to meet the likes of, you know, Tom Rennie, Bob Nicholson, Scott Salmon, Brad Pascal, and those guys. And I was playing noon hour hockey with them and then slowly transitioned into a uh, player development role, kind of a, um, you know, we did pilot camps throughout uh, that we would spread across the country for minor hockey associations. And then a job came up in hockey operations in 2012, um, you know, and I jumped at that having already worked part-time at Hockey Canada and, kind of to say the rest is history. 2012 was my first World Juniors uh, that I was involved with in, in Edmonton, Calgary. And then my last one was 2020 in, uh, or 2019, I should say, in Vancouver, Victoria, in my hometown, which was, you know, an awesome send-off for me. Um, but, you know, I owe everything to Hockey Canada. To get that back into that, I, I always had touch points with agents, you know, with, with high-level players coming into, whether it's a World Juniors or a men, Men's World Championships or an Olympics for that matter you're always touching base with the agents on insurance, on travel, on family travel, on everything. So I kept close relationships um, with, with agents and I knew it was something I wanted to do. And it's not that different than team services. It's, it's athlete relations. It's, it's understanding, having a level of compassion, you know, having the athletes back. Um, There's a lot of comparables between what I did at hockey Canada and what I do now as a, as a certified agent. So take us through your day-to-day. Like what is a typical, what is Bain Pettinger up to on a, on a day-to-day basis? Every day is different. I could have a client get traded in an hour here and it's moving his family across the country. I could, you know, have a, a junior player that has a Zoom interview with, uh, you know, the London Knights that we're prepping him for or a player have an injury that we need to get him to do a specialist. There's no... There's no sit down. Yeah, there's things I need to do, whether it's calling, you know, marketing agencies or GMs, checking in on players, a lot of checkups, um, you know, but you don't often get a call from a player and they're saying, hey, Bane, how are you? It's often (laughs) you look at your phone and go, "Okay, what fire am I putting out now? Um, You know, so it's a lot of that. It's reading and reacting. There is no real day to day. You know, it's kind of like you guys. If there's a hot news story, you got to dig in, get your sources. It's same with us. If there's an injury or a trade rumor or, or something that's, you know, a, a player that's, you know, um, needs some extra attention, uh, an expiring contract, you're looking at comparables, all of that. So it's always ever changing in the agency world. Ben, you mentioned uh, trade rumors. And of course, now until the uh, trade deadline, the next uh, five and a bit weeks, you know, you'll see a lot of that. 
dealing with the players i'm sure some guys they don't care others you know especially if they have a family maybe it it, it concerns them more what do you do as an agent when you hear a player's name because there's lots of names that get thrown out there that never actually get moved what's your role over the next five weeks yeah one thing i didn't realize when i signed up to be an agent was it's half a sports psychologist you know it's it's you really have to get into the player's mind and each player is different like every relationship you have whether it's with you know you talk to your brother different than you do your father it's it's no different in my list of clients that, you know, each player is different. Some shrug it off, um, you know, in the world we're in of instant media, um, you know, some person can put on Twitter, you know, trade this player and it, it can catch traction because their name gets mentioned a million times. Usually I like to go to the source, you know, if it's a player with a specific team, call the GM, you know, or call the, the team that's interested and say, hey, are you looking at this player? And try to get right to the source and eliminate the noise, you know, or if there's a reporter that tweets it or something, you know, I have good relationships with obviously you guys and some, some other friends and around that are pretty well connected in the media side of things. So see what they're hearing, you know, and, and really try and get to the bottom of it. And if there's any truth to it. Um, but like I said, some players are, eh, you know, and water off a duck's back and some, some, it gets them going. Cause you know, they go in, their head goes into a tailspin and well, I've got two kids and I've got a, a house here and I can't go there. And you know, what's my, what my wife's pregnant. And, and you know, there's people forget that there's many variables than just throwing on a different uni the next night, you know, they're, they're especially in this COVID world with crossing the border and, you know, tax situations. And there's, there's a lot more that goes into it than just hopping on a plane, the single player and, and playing the next night and everything's all good. Do you find when you call a GM, are they going to be open? Yeah. I'm looking to trade your guy. Cause you know, do they necessarily want that out there? How do you play that game of cat and mouse? How's the honesty factor or the openness uh, from a GM if potentially he's shipping a player or even shopping him? It depends what GM, you know, I've got some relationships with, you know, a, a handful of them in the game that, I, you know, I've worked with, whether at Hockey Canada, know them personally. And there's some that I've never even met before, you know? So within our agency, we kind of, who has the best relationship with this GM where we're all about teamwork and collaboration. So if someone knows you know, Bill Zito, for example, better, I'm not going to be the one to call him. You know, it'll be someone in our shop and vice versa. If I have a better relationship, say with Brad Tree Living, you know, I'll call him, you know, and then that's how we work is as a team and use all of our, all of our, you know, Rolodexes per se to make sure that we're getting the right information to our client. I mentioned in the intro that uh, you're a proud Victoria native, wondering how much that Victoria and BC connection has helped you in your career. Your brother, Matt, of course, played in the NHL, but just the other connections that you've had from growing up there, you mentioned Tyson Barry at some point, um, you know, the connections with the Ben brothers, how has that helped you in your career? For sure. It's been great. You know, we're, we're, we kind of have a chip on our shoulder on the Island, you know, we're, we're the, the small brother to Vancouver, but we're proud of it. And, uh, you know, there's some some great athletes to come from Victoria, whether, you know, it was the Courtnell brothers in the hockey world, but also Steve Nash and basketball. And we're only a town of about 400,000 people, you know, which is relatively small. Um, but but helping, you know, with growing up with Tyson and, you know, when Lenberry was in the league, my brother Matt was kind of the young buck to him. And then when Matt was in the league, Tyson was kind of the young guy to him. And then I was, you know, the brother of Matt and it, the Ben brothers I played against growing up. I remember Jamie, I was an 18-year-old playing junior and Jamie was a, a 15 year old phenom out there. And I was like, this guy can play. And then, you know, they come to a world championships or world juniors and you cross over and you always see each other in the summer, but yeah, being, having those connections from Victoria, um, it's definitely a great place to not known as a hockey hotbed across Canada, but we are, uh, we are very proud of it and, uh, you know, has had some great people come out of it. I just want to let you know that everyone listening that's driving in their truck in the prairies in a town of 136 people just spit out their coffee when you said that 400,000 is a small town. Yeah, but we, we don't have rinks frozen year round, right? We've got golf courses open year round, so they've got an advantage there. They can skate all the time. So, you know, numbers wise, we, uh, we're at a disadvantage there. I know 400,000 isn't that small, but you know what I mean when I say uh, the non-hockey hotbed, there's probably, you know, in Saskatchewan, a lot more players to come out than Victoria, BC. Fair. Um, I want you to take us, the Beijing Olympics are going on right now. And obviously this is a a different Olympics for so many reasons. Uh, And for one, uh, it's the first that you haven't been there in a number of years with Hockey Canada. 
Uh, A, are you glad because of everything that's going on with COVID and how difficult it must be, but also to take us, B, take us through the belly of the beast. What's it like being inside an Olympics? And, and tell us about your role in 2014 and 18, um, you know, making sure the magic happens. Yeah, Olympics is is so special. It's so different than just a hockey tournament. And by that, I mean, you know, world juniors, you show up in a world championships, you know, it's just a hockey tournament going on. Um, at the Olympics, you're part of something bigger. You know, you're in the village and you're, you have Team Canada meetings and there's, you look across the room and there's Tessa, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer or, you know, Michael, Mikel Kingsbury, or, you know, there's, you feel such a bigger part, you're a small piece as the hockey team, but you, there's such a, a pride of at an Olympics, whether it's walking in the opening ceremonies or closing or going to another event, watching the curlers or the speed skaters, um, you know, so that's what really separates the Olympics. As far as I do have a bit of nostalgia watching it, you know, watch, I'll watch the game tonight against Canada, USA. And I've actually got a, a, a nice friendly wager with my coworker that uh, that's American, but um, it's just a special, special, you know, place. I think the Olympics, the spirit of it is something that will never, whether it's NHL players or not, um, there's something about, you know, the gold medal. I still, we won uh, bronze in Pyeongchang and I still have it here. And it's one of my most cherished medals, you know, and I, I don't put that, say that lightly because it's, it's something, especially with that non NHL group, you have to bring these players together. You've got, you know, players in Russia, players on AHL deals, players in Sweden, and you have to bring them all together. You may have one exhibition game and then it's go time, right? There is no, you know, that's the thing about short-term competition. There's no, you can't go on a 10 game losing streak and your coach get fired. You, you lose the first game at the world juniors and you're all of a sudden behind the eight ball. You know, it, it's very, you know, you have to win now and have buy-in. And that's the toughest thing is that you have to have all these players from around the world come in and, and really play their role with team Canada. So as far as 2018, I was more of the, I was the team services manager. So I was in, in charge of all logistics for the team. So where are we staying? What route are we taking to the rink? What clothes are we wearing today? What time's our practice? What, what Jersey color are we wearing? You're in those meetings across from Sweden. Okay. We're, they're going to wear yellow. Okay. We're well red. You know, um, I was more, I was just starting in 2014. So I was more on the family side of things, helping the families out, but definitely around the team and in planning and um, you know, to compare the two, it's obviously awesome. Best on best. Let's not get that wrong. You know, would we have loved to see, you know, Sidney Crosby versus Patrick Kane here for sure. But there is still a pride and having been to multiple Olympics, um, something that just, I think personally brings the, the country together and I hope everyone can still get behind them because these players are professionals and um, it, it's just awesome to see the passion and watching that game yesterday when Eric Odell ran over that guy and then we scored right away. It was I was up cheering. So it's, uh, it's, it's something special for sure. See, well done by you there though. Instead of, you know, you're picking two guys Crosby against Kane, you're going two CAA guys. That's very, like, I see that subtle. And, you know, most people might think of a different couple players, U S Canada. Yeah. I gotta, you know, I gotta take care of the CAA guys. That's for sure. We could go McKinnon. We could go a couple guys. <laughs> Bain, as you get more experience in, in the agent world, and you mentioned, you know, you've you've uh, dealt with them many times and on a different level. What was or what has been the, you know, the biggest eye opener for you now that you're a full time agent? In terms of like my role or in yeah. terms of like just what, yeah. you know, what, everything that encompasses being an NHL agent? I honestly think it, it is, I touched on it earlier, but it's the sports psychology part. It's, it's, you know, dealing with these high level athletes that, you know, it's not just a, a banner that pops across the bottom of a sports center thing that says, Hey, they signed for this. It's, it's, it's situation. Where do they want to be? Where, where does their wife want to be? Where, you know, what, how is this deal going to set them up long-term? You know, how is this injury going to hinder them long-term? You know, they're worried that their career is done. Say they go and put, do an ACL or an, another player gets hot and tries to take their place. It's, it's really the, the people managing side of it, um, you know, in our clients. And that's something that, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a hint on, but I didn't think it would be this intense, but I'm a compassionate person myself. I like it. I like those relationships. I like, you know, walking through it, thinking whole picture of, you know, parents, families, wives, kids, location, um, everything. But yeah, for me, the biggest eye opener has been the, the sports psychology part of it. Um, you know, and the players are really, you're a sounding board for them. You know, they're not, 
you're not their coach, you're not their parent, you're not their partner, you know, and they pay you. So you have to, you, you, you sometimes just sit there and just listen, you know, to their frustrations and, oh, I'm not playing well. Or, you know, how's this, you know, I got a goal last night. How's that going to set me up for my contract? So it's, it's managing highs and lows, you know, and trying to just keep them even keel on their career. Yeah, the interesting one to me is like a player who who's in the final year, right? He doesn't have a contract and uh, whether he's a UFA or even RFAs, right? They, some players, it doesn't seem to bother them. I've talked to others that say it definitely weighs on them, Bain. So w- when you talk to a player during the season, is it is your advice just don't worry about it like it'll take care of itself because to me that we've seen like i always chuckle when people are like oh look at this guy it's his contract year he has a career year i'm like yeah for every one of those guys there's like seven guys who are in the final year of their deal who aren't having a contract year right and then it becomes a real stressor for some players because they feel like man i'm losing out is is that one of the tougher ones because the financial pressures maybe more than anything else yeah. And I think, especially in the salary cap era, right. It, it's finding a piece instead of, you know, on, on July 1st or whatever the new date is, it's not, you know, 20 teams are calling because they have cap room. It's five, you know, and it's not because they don't like you. It's that they have, you know, they're at 80 million. They don't have the room. They would love to have you, but they have to move a piece to get you. And that's the salary cap era. So the, the opportunities kind of get minimized, right? So that, that weighs on the players, especially in a contract year, they, they feel that they're on trial every game, right? They, they go out and go minus two, they're, they're down in the dumps. They go out and go plus two and go, here comes the big box, you know? And it, it, it each, again, each player is different. Like I said, each client is, um, but yeah, contract year is, is an interesting one for players and you can see it go both ways, right? And unfortunately you're as good as your last, your last season in our world, right? You can have 30 goal scorers that if you go out and get 10 in your contract year, and that's why we have arbitration. That's why we have, you know, we try and look at a whole career over a whole season and, uh, you know, and that, but yeah, I, I, I do think that a contract year weighs on a, on a player, um, at least from the experience I've had. And I want to ask you about your journey off the ice. Um, you know, you came out in your story in November, 2020. So it's been what, uh, it's been a little bit of time, uh, yeah, just over a year. Yep. And I'm curious how your life has changed, you, you know, in the story, it wasn't news to your family. Your brother, Matt had said that, that your family had known for about 10 years, but you said you were tired of walking into a room and, and, you know, playing the game of who knows and who doesn't, how has your life been different since coming out? Oh, it's been fantastic. It's been, you know, that was, you know, in November 5th, there was the best day of my life because I could now shed that weight of, you know, and I think it's just because I work in sports and, and hockey specifically, I just think we're a bit behind in, in hockey of that. It is a big deal, you know, that I did have to come out with Pierre Lebrun. You know, if I worked at a bank or a tech company, I don't think that would have happened, but I think the world, the hockey world we're living in, we're, we still have a bit of an old guard and that it, like, Oh, you can't be gay and be a, a successful sports executive. So I'm trying to break that down to, to humanize it really you know, to say, yes, you can. And, and here I am, you know, and, and I think it's human nature that if you haven't seen someone go before you, you know, if you haven't seen a media member say, Oh, I'm openly gay and I can talk hockey or a sports executive or a player like Luke Prokop, you know, how many kids now in, in the CHL go, Oh, I can now he's an NHL drafted player, or I want to be an agent. Now I see Bane Pettinger. And I think it's, if you haven't seen it done beforehand, you don't think it's possible. Um, and for me, it was, it was awesome. It was me combining my personal private life with my professional life, you know, being a, a public facing NHL agent. And, you know, once I started reaching out, you know, uh, to some of the players that I mentioned that were interviewed in the article and some of my old bosses at hockey Canada, and, um, you know, it, it kind of came from them that, Hey, I think you could do something with this. And, you know, it, it, I sat down with Pierre and he said, Hey, I'd love to put it together. And, you know, I remember the night before I, <laughs> I was sitting, I, my body broke out in hives. I was like, what am I? I asked Pierre to pull the article last minute. And I was, you know, it was pretty intense, you know, but as soon as I saw that come across Twitter, I knew that my life was going to change and, and it's been for the best. I now can walk into a room and no one can use my sexuality as a weapon against me in this, you know, hyper-masculine hockey world that we live in. I, it's, if you have a problem with it, that's your problem. It's not my problem. And I think we're, we're starting to see that with, you know, the likes of, of, you know, you, you guys amplifying this story and same with Pierre and, and other podcasts that really, and in the most respectful way possible, who cares, you know, let's, let's judge, judge me and judge other people on how they do their job. You know, am I a good agent? Not, 
not who my partner is. And I think that's the shift that we're, we're starting to see. Yeah. The support that you got from, you know, the entire sport, but also, you know, some of the biggest stars and the relationships that you've had with them over the years, Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby go down the list of executives that, that reached out and, and said that they were, you know, proud of you and, and proud to know you, you know, is, is one thing that you said is interesting, kind of grabbed my attention was like, do you feel like your sexuality was being weaponized against you? Like, did you feel any, um, you know, what was, what were the last few years like leading up to it? You know, those who knew or didn't know, um, you know, in terms of when you would walk into a room. I think, you know, looking back, Frank, it was more internal with me thinking that people were going to do that. Right. And I talked to, since I've come out, I have, you know, my, my mention, my DMS and my, I'm always an open book for anyone that's listening that wants to reach out. I've had people reach out, um, you know, that are still closeted. And the, and the hardest part was my night right before the article came out, right? You think all the what ifs, oh my, oh my gosh, what if CAA fires me? What if, you know, I'm going to lose friends? What if it's all what ifs? And you kind of have to push that aside. And I consider it to jumping off a diving board. You just got to go, right? And not care about what other people think. So when I say using it, weaponizing, yeah, I've been threatened to be outed before, right? And, and I think most people have, that's their worst fear is not controlling their narrative and, and tell they're ready. You know, I wasn't 33 till I came out. You know, I've had, I have kids in Western Canada reach out that are 15 that go, I feel like I have to either quit hockey and be gay or stay in the closet and play hockey because it's not a safe spot. And that's something that we're trying to change is that, you know, that, that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be A or B. You can be gay and be in hockey. And I think the likes of Brock McGillis, the likes of Luke Prokop, the likes of myself, you know, not trying to put myself on their, you know, level, but I think the more that we can humanize it is, is just awesome. And that's why, you know, Brock McGillis and I are, are starting actually a, a not-for-profit with some other people called Alphabet Sports Collective, where it's just going to be, you know, a place to build community and empower individuals and, and really build a safe space for those specifically that want to get involved with hockey and, and really want to, you know, ask questions and, and have a, build a community and, and really be involved in it and, and, and have those people that have done it before them. Curtis Gabriel is one of them, you know, Dr. Cheryl McDonald, who's an expert and, and Brian Mortensen, who, you know, can just be a sounding board for these youth because this, this era that we live in of instant gratification, Instagram, Twitter likes, you know, everyone fears what ifs, what if I can't, you know, I can't be gay and, and be a Western league pick. Well, Luke Prokop's done that. You know, so I think it's just breaking down those barriers of, of humanizing it, normalizing it. And let's get the, the idiots out of the game that don't think that we have a spot in the game. Uh, and I think we're seeing that with, you know, not to compare it to Hockey Diversity Alliance, but, you know, with with, with breaking down barriers in the game. You know, Cammy Granado got hired yesterday as an AGM. You know, we never would have thought we'd seen that. You know, there's I think we're seeing really positive shifts in the game in hockey and diversity and inclusion. And I think that that's only going to be great for the game because with that comes better people, better minds, better people playing the game, you know, better people managing the game, better people doing media in the game. Um, you know, and I think that's only going to be better for the game, which is a great game that we all love. Man, I appreciate your honesty about this. And um, it's not something that I can, can relate to at all of, of, of worrying about, you know, if, you know, Hey, the biggest, toughest decision I had to make and worrying about what if was, uh, will I look good when I shave my head? And I really had no choice in the matter because the hair wasn't growing anyway, you know, so it's, it pales in comparison at the end of the day. But so you look back on, you talk about having hives and like, that's, you're seriously nervous and anxious about everything. And then it happens and you're just like, wow, like this has gone way better. So when you talk to people, it has your positive reaction and response from people maybe force you to say, Hey, you know what? Like I have to, when I'm talking to people recognize, and, and I know everybody's situation might be different. Like, do you view yourself lucky that everything went well? Or do you think that, that maybe people overall are more understanding and we focus too much on the one or 2% that aren't? Yeah. But I also think I've, I've been pretty lucky in my situation with my parents, you know, okay. growing up in a, in a great neighborhood in Victoria, you know, I don't have those, those hard struggles. And I realize that, that I don't have to choose between coming out of the closet and my parents disowning me. You know, some people have to deal with that. And mine was, I'll be honest, mine was very smooth. Right. So I can't put myself in their shoes either when they go, well, I can't tell my, my mom cause she'll kick me out of the house, which 
in today's era, I go, well, then you really, you know what, if you, if you have to decide between your happiness and your mother and, you know, so I there is so many scenarios out there, whether it's mental health, you know, people, you know, on the verge of suicide, you know, and, and, and all that because of, they have to choose. I, I'm going to be honest. I had it very good. And, and I, when I talk to people, whether it's through, you know, anonymous or, you know, or open people that are right on the verge, it's kind of like, Hey, this is going to be the best day of your life. I can put myself in your shoes of what it's like. You know, you have to create a list of who you want to tell, who you want to, who you want to hear from you personally, you know, and, and at the end of the day, everyone's on their own journey. I've talked to some people, got them real close to coming out and living their truth. And then they go, Hey, it's not, it's not worth it to me. You know, I, I can't, I can't do it. And then there's people that have, have done it and it's the best day of their life, you know, and like, like me, but I was very fortunate that I grew up in a, you know, white middle-class, you know, resident uh, family that is very extremely supportive. And, you know, so I, I hate to say, but I had it good, you know, compared to some of the stories that I hear uh, of people having to choose, you know, to come out of the closet or not. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate for, for those who, who have to endure that. And, and thankfully, you know, congratulations to your family and everybody to being so supportive. So, but do you think that you going through that Bane, and you talked earlier about how you feel you're naturally a compassionate person, that's going to help you as an agent when we kind of circle all the way around talking about the sports psychology. Like you're somebody that maybe when you talk about hardships, the players are like, well, you know what? I'm going to listen to Bane because here's a guy who did a pretty courageous thing, who who's had to deal with some challenges, that, you know, different than maybe, you know, like stressors and stuff, but similar in that sense. Do you think that helps you? Like do the players kind of trust you when you have to maybe be hard on a player sometime to say, Hey, don't blame the coach here. You got to play better. This is on you. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it gained a lot of respect in my peers' eyes, you know, to explain to them personally, you know, and I remember talking to Tyson Berry and Morgan Riley and those guys beforehand, and they said, oh, you can do this, you know, and they've helped me out. So in return, as clients, you know, I try and do the same. I think I think empathy is a big thing that I try and lean on, you know, especially in today's world, the last, what we've been through in the last two years is everyone's going through something, right? Everyone has some, no one is perfect, right? Everyone, whether it's a mental health issue or a physical disability or something that they're self-conscious about, or, you know, and I'm not even talking hockey. I'm just talking real life. You know, sometimes I'll talk to clients and it's, we don't even talk about hockey. Let's talk about your wife or your kid or, you know, whichever. And sometimes they don't want to talk about hockey, you know, because that's all they do. They show up at the rink, they talk to their coaches, they talk to the media, they're in a power play meeting. They want to get away from it. Like, like we do. Right. And, and I think empathy is a big thing that I try to have with our clients, um, you know, and, and I think I think they appreciate that, that we can have honest conversations and I can give them feedback. They can tell me, you know, to that. I don't know enough about hockey and I, you know, I'm not telling Tyson Berry that he should, you know, shoot from the point harder. But, you know, if there's little things about talking to the coach or he needs a nudge or whatever, then I'm, I'm here for that, you know. Frank, let me just one more for me. Bain, uh, speaking of Barry, and then, of course, you know, we've seen Vancouver and Montreal and a few other teams coaching changes midseason. Um, do you when a like a player like Tyson Barry, do you call him and say, hey, this is what I've heard about Dave Manson? Do you guys talk like I'm using him as an example because it's fresh and in, in the mind of everybody. But when there's coaching changes do the agent, do you reach out to a player on your team and, and try to get some information on or, or and say, hey, maybe some of them have never had a coaching change in the middle of a season before on how to deal with it and how to approach their new coach. Yeah. Tice had one in with Mike Babcock. So he's been through that. Um, but you know, I know Woody personally taught uh, Jay. So like I, I've had him at a world championships before Tice has never met him. So I talked to Tyson yesterday and just said, Hey, you're going to love Woody. You know, he's a great players coach. Um, you know, just give him a heads up. So when he shows up today, the, the pregame room, maybe he has that connection and goes, Hey, I know Boehner, you know, and it, it can just help again. It's those relationships you know, that, that can help. And maybe that, you know, that just breaks their guard down just half a, half a point. And that just makes the transition for both of them easier. I text Woody and said, Hey, you're going to love Tyson, you know? So maybe they meet today and it's, you know, Hey, yeah, we know we have a mutual friend, you know, but yeah, I, I, any coach that I know, I try to give a player a heads up. And I like to, I like to talk to the coaches too, because yeah, we work for the player, but also if you're only hearing from the player's point of view, you know, and I use that a lot with the junior guys, they go, oh, I'm getting, you know, I'm not playing enough or I'm not, you know, I'm not on the first unit power play. I'll, I'll phone the coach or GM and get their side of it, you know, and if I need to challenge the player, because if I'm just the leader of the booster club for the player, whether it's a junior or, or NHL, I'm not doing my job, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent then, right? If I'm just agreeing with them, if something needs to change in their game or their attitude or their off ice, 
I like to hear that from the team. And then I can be the one I can work with the team to get a message through to the player, because at the end of the day, that's the only way it's going to work. Right. And if I am, if I'm only listening to one side of the player, Oh, I'm getting screwed. Oh, I'm, you know, they don't like me here. I got to get traded. That's, that's not fair to the player. I have to do my full due diligence to get the pitcher um, so that I can relay the proper message and, and fix it. Right. Cause everyone wants to be going smooth and, and it, the player, the team wants the best player and the player wants the best team. So you're almost a relationship guy there too. I'm laughing when you said you're texting Jay Woodcroft. You're also texting Tyson. Like I'm thinking you should start a booster club. We'll call it friends of Bane because like, that's why I said the intro the way I did. Everyone's friends of Bane. So, you know, take me back to, I want to take you back to one thing you said just a few minutes ago. And you said you felt like hockey's a little bit behind. Um, you know, I think we'd all be in agreement with that. So no dispute there, but we've also seen a lot of positive steps that we also talked about and positive movement statistically. And like there, there has to be some active NHL players who are gay, how far away or how close are we to someone being comfortable enough to do that? Uh, that's a tough question. You know, I get, I get asked that all the time. It's, you know, okay, we've got a, we've got media people, we've got executives, we've got a junior hockey player, you know, but not an actively rostered NHL player. That's gay. You know, I think the numbers don't lie that they, there is, you know, players, there's 750 odd players. There has to be a few that are gay. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's the, again, it's the pressure of being the poster boy, right. And, and them fearing that, again, the what ifs, right. That I went through of, well, what if this affects my contract? What if, you know, then I'm, I'm not the goal scorer, I'm the gay goal scorer, you know? And I think, I think we'll see some players that have retired that will come out, but once they're out of the spotlight, you know, they, they, they're so driven to this, these players are put on this pedestal, you know, that they're somehow superheroes when really they're just normal people that are exceptionally good at hockey. You know, you guys are, are exceptionally good at media, and you're put on pedestals when you, when the mic goes off or when the lights go down in the arena, you're just a regular guy, you know, same as me. And I think it's, it's getting to that comfort level of more people like myself and Luke and Brock and, you know, executives. And, and it, I know it's, it's kind of counterproductive, but it not being a news story, you know what I mean? And I hope that in 10 years from now, there's not a big article when the first player comes out because you know, we're seeing it in football, you know, with, with the Raiders, you know, and that was a big news, but then who, you know, it's almost like, okay, let's move on, you know, with Carl Nazib there, I'm a Raiders fan. So that was huge for me to see that I've already got his Jersey and, you know, whether it's professional soccer or, you know, uh, baseball and, you know, uh, basketball, um, I think we will see in hockey. We are, like you said, we are, since I've come out in the last year, I've seen a lot of positive changes and you know that's a kudos to the people that are working in the game i think there's still a lot to go um you know especially around you know diversity and inclusion but we're moving in the right direction and and uh, you know i think that's that's a positive step but i think that's also kind of the problem though like you hit it right on the head in the sense that if you do make the decision to come out and speak publicly about it that there's also kind of this responsibility that comes on the back end of it, which is something like doing a podcast now and talking about it. Was there any reluctance on your part? Not everyone wants that spotlight. Not everyone wants to be asked about that. You know, I I know that there are current NHL executives that are gay that are not out and open to the public because they don't necessarily want it. They don't want that. They don't want to be asked about that. How do you manage that? And how much a part of that was your decision to, to come out? Yeah. Let's be honest. I wouldn't be on this podcast if I was straight. Right. So like as good of a guy as you guys think I am, if I, you know, it's making news because I am gay and because of what I went through in my twenties and early thirties, you got to remember, I didn't come out till I was 33. Right. So I, I, it's not like I woke up at 16 and this is all I've known. You know, I battled this in my twenties for, for many years of, can I, can I have a successful career in the hockey world and be gay? So where I do, um, you know, with, with helping and doing podcasts like this and, and, and the, the not-for-profit that we're starting is, is trying to help those youth, you know, and if, if one person reaches out, you know, then that, that's all worth it to have some 16 year old kid in the Western league go, Hey, I'm going to tell my teammates tomorrow to know that he doesn't have to go through angst and anxiety and wondering what ifs 
that's why I do it. You know, I, I've got big, broad shoulders. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four. I can, I can take it. The online trolls, whatever, you know, there's always, as you guys said, the one, two percent that are, are bigots out there that, you know, can't adjust to society. And, and, and that's their problem, you know, and I think we just got to be loud and proud and, and I'm happy to take that on with my personality. I I'm, I'm happy to be that uh, flagship. It's not for everyone. Um, you know, and we welcome all that, that want to, or those that are just fine being gay and being quiet. And that, that's fine too. But because we're a minority, I think we do have to speak up and, and do advis- uh, uh, you know, advisory work and, and, and get it out there that it's okay to be gay and, and be in the hockey world. And that's all we're trying to do. Well said, Bain, and good on you. We always uh, wrap up our interviews with a little rapid fire. Jay, fire away. All right, Bain. So the, uh, the only, and by the way, hey, we've had agents on the show, so we might've had you on strictly for your hair, but um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to it now. Uh, the only rule is you have to answer the question. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll start. Do you give easy. me options? Do you give me options? Like A or uh, B? No, or not, just not really. Guys? No, that's, it's not multiple choice. No, like, okay. well, I guess I could ask you a multiple choice question. Maybe I'll mix that in there. All right. I can spur okay. the moment. We'll see. Okay. But uh, we'll start with an easy one. Uh, uh, Bain Pettinger, maybe it's, it's the off season or whatever. And you, one of your clients signs a, a big deal. What's your, uh, celeb- what's your drink of choice, alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Pint of Guinness. Ooh. Love it. Best pub you've ever had a Guinness in? Uh, St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland. Of course, in Ireland. That's a win. I like it. Yeah, that, that's that's at the brewery there. You do the you do the brewery tour, and then there's a little sky bar up top, and it's uh, as fresh as can be right from the brewery. GM, you enjoy negotiating with the most? Brad Tree Living. GM, that was the toughest on you early in negotiations. Toughest on me. Um, who would it be? Probably uh, Kenny Holland. Oh, all right. Veteran guys. Um, when best advice you would give to anybody on what it takes to be a successful agent? Compassion. Um, put yourself in the athlete's shoes. You know, you, you, you have to not be a fan. You have to be, you work for them, but that comes with good and bad news and just, um, you know, weighing that out and, and really just having compassion and empathy for the short lives career of these athletes that are put on a spotlight uh, and put on a pedestal when, when you really just need to, to be a sounding board for them. Moose gel or paste? Paste, curly paste. Come on. Dude. I, have you seen me? I trust me. I have no idea. Yeah, I get asked Frank. I have no clue, man. I just, I'm yeah. using a razor up here. That's all I got. I'm, I'm a pomade guy. <laughs> You're shick, shick or bick. Uh, I'm, I'm a bick man. hundred percent. Um, when you were at the Olympics, if Bain Pettinger could be any sport at the Winter Olympics, not hockey, what would you compete in? Well, given my size, I'd probably be a skeleton or something like that to get down the ice track shoot. But it would be fun to do that, like the uh, squirrel man ski jump. But that would be the several broken bones for me if I attempted that. See, I thought you were going to say golf. Yeah, but it's not the Winter Olympics. I was so. thinking winter. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You're, you're on the right page. You're on the right page. So was there one sport that you saw live at the Olympics that you really hadn't seen before when you were there that you became an instant fan of? That short track speed skating is fun to watch live because it is like bumper cars and they, uh, it's a lot more physical, but also sledge hockey. I mean, I've seen it before, but sledge hockey is uh, para hockey is sneaky physical. They've got, you know, they, they go full in tilt, but I'd say that for one I hadn't seen live was that short track speed skating. They're, they're bumper to bumper and they're going quick around a small circle. I, I can tell you, I had the, uh, the pleasure of uh, doing a, a sledge hockey uh, fun game uh, with some of the Canadian members of the Canadian national team and the little picks in their sticks. Like that's a weapon, dude. Like I was watching them play. And ever since then, I was just like, oh my God. And their ability to shoot the puck with both hands. I was amazed. It's not, it was, I was so, I had such an appreciation of that sport after playing it, but you're right. Like their ability to cut on their blades and then how physical the game is with those little it pegs. Is, it is full contact. And those yeah. pegs, you think, you think a butt ends bad with a regular <laughs> hockey stick. Try having spikes <laughs> on the end of it. It's true. Oh, I love it. Bane, yeah. thanks so much for joining us, man. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, continued success. Okay. Thanks so much guys. And keep up the good work. Thanks, Bane.
Well, that was inspiring stuff, Frank. I really enjoyed talking to Bain. And I, you know what? There's going to make a difference. I love that he has his DMs open to a, to a lot of kids and people who, you know, uh, who are dealing with probably this the, the tough decision on when to come out for them. And like Bain said, there's never a right answer. I just hope that uh, everybody supports him. I'm glad to hear that he got support. Uh, you know, it's something that no person should have to worry about if, you know, how they're going to be received. Uh, you would hope that it would be with open arms at bare minimum with their family. Yep. Uh, simply put, uh, he said it best. Who cares? Like love is love. Like, I don't, it doesn't, doesn't no. change at anything. It shouldn't. And I just appreciate his willingness to talk about it. Cause that that's, and that's why I asked the question is there's a lot of people that may want to come out, but they don't want to deal with all the stuff that comes after all the requests, all the, can you do this? Can you do that? That's a lot to take on. It really is. It's a, it becomes a burden that you feel like you probably have to live up to it because you want to make things better for everyone else. And so it takes a special person to be willing to do that and, and good on him. Like he said, the best day of his life. Think about that. November 5th. It's been 15 months. Good for Bane Pettinger. And I hope we get to a place where more people are like, you know, Bane and Luke Prokop and Brock McGillis that, you know, you're just able to come out and and be your true authentic self and live your true life. Yeah. I wish them all the best and very courageous. And like you said, Frank, I think sometimes you forget it's not just coming out. It's the, it's understanding that once you do, there's going to be responsibility extra that comes with it, whether you like it or not. And so that that's probably part of the conversation. So uh, kudos to Bain. Uh, interesting. Enjoyed that conversation and really some good insight just about being a player agent too. Like, let's be honest to me, that was, you know, the more lots of interesting stuff there as well about just the, the psychology of it and dealing with different GMs and different players. And now we are, you know, trade deadline in the next five weeks. It's a stressful time for some players, no doubt. So uh, that, that's some good insight as well. And uh, we'll see, Frank, uh, Montreal and Edmonton, uh, two coaching changes, some differences there. We'll get to that. And uh, when we talk up on uh, Monday, we'll be five weeks from the trade deadline as the uh, the rumors and uh, the names. We can start to maybe piece together a few dots a little bit more. So have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. Giddy up. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash.